Coming up on this episode of Movie Geeks United, our special events correspondent Rich Gedney talks to us about Cartemquin Films' 50th anniversary gala, we review the latest incarnation of Ghostbusters, and we discuss the best political films ever made. It's time to get your geek on. Movie Geeks United starts now. to Movie Geeks United. Thanks for joining us tonight. we got a great show up ahead of uh, invigorating movie talk on assorted titles and topics. Uh, but first, at the top of the show here, I wanted to introduce everyone to a recent member of the Movie Geeks United family. Not so recent, because a few years ago, actually, this gentleman uh, began taping segments for us at the Atlanta Film Festival alongside Dean. And recently, he made a trip to the Cartemquin Films' 50th Anniversary Gala and got us some great on-camera interviews with a wide assortment of, of terrific filmmakers. And we wanted to shine a spotlight on some of those video segments and on his work in particular. Tonight, it's Mr. Rich Gedney. Rich, how are you, buddy? I'm doing very well. Thank you for having me on the show. It's, it's a pleasure to, to become part of the geekdom. <laughs> I'm sorry. Yes. Have you, has your cape come in the mail yet? I mean, that's part of it. I, actually, I did get something. I haven't opened it yet. Though. Was that the cape? So, yeah, yeah I'm looking cape. forward to it. Yeah. Yeah. And if you're like Jerry, you wear nothing else with the cape. It's just the cape. Mm-hmm. No, Jerry can get by with that now. I, I couldn't. I don't have a body. For I know. I Jerry can get by with that. I mean, no, no, no. We don't have capes. Thankfully, we don't have any crap like that. Thankfully. Um. <laughs> Thanks for ruining the joke. So, no. Rich, yeah. uh, t- first of all, uh, you, you and Dean go way back. That's, that was your introduction to the show, was it? Well, actually, Dean and I met through Lisa Bumgardner, Bumgardner Fallor, who actually, as Dean likes to put it, and I like to put it the same way, I, I stole it from him, she was the progenitor of the punk rock fanzine. And... Uh, pretty well-known artist and, and just a very unique woman. I met her online a number of years ago, and then she wanted to get up. Dean had uh, a book of hers and was doing some work with her, and that, that's kind of how I met Dean. I guess that was, what, five or six years ago, Dean? I'm not – something yeah. like that. Yeah. And you guys would hook up and, you, and attend the Atlanta Film Festival together. Yeah, I mean, I I I wanted to do a uh, you know series of film filmmaker interviews, and and Rich was wanting to practice his uh, his um, video making skills, so it was a good matchup, and he's always done a really fantastic job, uh, you know, uh, getting getting these things uh, edited. Filmed, edited, and uh, and put up on on the web. So uh, so that's what led to him 
wanting to take a solo gig up to Chicago to do the Kartemquin uh, coverage. So, so just, yeah, just mean, to let uh, everybody know, all, all of Rich's videos that he's done for us are on our YouTube channel, which is youtube.com slash moviegeeksunited. And before we get into Kartemquin films, uh, tell me a, f- a couple of highlights for you in terms of Filming and being there with Dean on the on the festival circuit. What are some of those connections that y- you most fondly remember, Rich? Well, I, I uh, I'm trying to remember the gentleman's name. He he did the Handy movie. Uh, he's an Italian filmmaker. Dean, what is his name? I can't. I'm trying to remember it all. <laughs> you know what? Vincenzo, I, it slipped Vincenzo, my mind. Yeah. Yeah, Vincenzo. Yeah. And he's a very unique filmmaker, and I, I enjoyed meeting him. But we had some problem. I mean, Dean and I have been doing this for like the Atlanta Film Festival, what three, four years now. And then yeah. one year we we had problems. I had a hard drive that I was saving videos to, so we. I mean, I'm gonna admit my own errors here, and so I lost a number of about three or four interviews, and that was one of his. Was one of the ones that I lost, and I always regret that. But I've tried to make up for it since. And I hope I have in you guys' eyes. And um, but he was very unique and very passionate. So I don't know if I've ever met a filmmaker as passionate as Vincenzo, really, to be truthful. But I mean, there have been a lot of people. Um, it's just been a unique experience for me. I've learned a lot from it. Anytime you have to set up your camera quick and do interviews very quick, and and uh, it, it teaches you framing how to frame things very quickly. And I've gotten mm-hmm. better at that over the years, I think. At least I hope I have. Like, were you, um, for instance, like the red carpet for uh, David Gordon Green's film? Mm-hmm. Which one? Mud? Was it Mud that they played that year? Did, uh, did, yeah. Uh, Joe. I'm trying Joe, to remember really? now. Joe. Yeah, it was Joe. Joe. Was Mud that year. Joe. That's it. That's one of those one. I got it mixed up because they were they were both uh, opening night movies. Uh, Joe and Mud were both opening night movies. At, uh, yeah. When they played Atlanta when they Bull played Festival. Muddy Joe, uh, <laughs> were, were you? Uh, I mean, you were shooting you were shooting those on the red carpet. Yeah, we did we did red carpet, but um, for a little while. But to be truthful, though, I think what we found out, and I this year I did all the the filming and interviewing myself. Um, because Dean's been doing this for so many years, you know, you, you got to take a break from some of this stuff because it, yeah. you know, it can, it can just get to you. Uh, because it's not just that, but it's kind of like the, how the, sometimes you kind of pushed around on the red carpet and th- that's not really where we need to be. We need to be, I, yeah. I feel we're better at one-to-one with the filmmaker. Yeah. And we have more time that way, but literally I had like this year, <laughs> At the film festival, I had like six inches, and I'm not kidding you. <laughs> That's how much space they gave me on the red carpet. They had like 25 people on the red carpet, and it's only like 10 feet long. So <laughs> you can imagine. <laughs> so I said, you know, mm. guys, I appreciate it, but, you know, I I think we're going to go on to our, doing our one-to-ones. So. Yeah. Yeah, I think that's where we shine, or, and you guys especially, most of all. I remember doing one red carpet thing where I had one question with Marsha Gay Harden, and <laughs> she was pregnant at the time, 
and her uh-huh. I, I might cut this out I don't know and her boobs were spilling out of her dress so all and you're right you're in such close proximity I felt like my head was practically in her boobs trying to <laughs> this question it's disturbing it's a little it's a little disturbing because being on a red carpet there's some kind of there's a pressure to to move fast and so your questions can't be very penetrating or uh or enlightening or anything you know they Right, you you almost have to ask questions that are so light the that uh, they yeah. can be answered yeah. in five seconds. You know, so, well, that, yeah. Uh, yeah, well, you have people so. waiting. I mean, you don't see this, but there, I mean, there are cameramen and just people with sound recorders, just you know, wall to wall there. And then you also have the publicist or the PR person saying, you know, rolling your finger, you know, saying you've got to wrap this up, we got to go, got to go, which you don't, yeah. you know, people don't see that. So, yeah, it's, so it can be, you know. Uh, so, Kartimquin. Now, anyone that listened to our Art of the Documentary series is familiar with Kartimquin because one of the co-founders was on it and a couple of their filmmakers. But Kartimquin comes out of Chicago. It has, a obviously, a 50-year legacy of producing great documentary work. Uh, and it's had a tremendous influence on the form of documentary in general, not just in a regional sense. But they had their 50th anniversary gala, and you got an invite and traveled up there on behalf of Movie Geeks United. Tell me, uh, what first of all, just generally, what was uh, that experience like being in there? Uh, well, it was it was he- very hectic. Um, the thing is, when you do uh, events, and I've done a, I've done a few, not a lot, just a, a, a few, a couple, and uh, you know, people are very excited. You you've got uh, liquor in the mix so they're getting really excited and kind of and really opening up and and it can be very you can get a great interview or or something you're just going to have to not be able to use later but luckily i got a lot of really great uh interviews i hope people have enjoyed them uh especially which and i had no idea i was going to get them was uh arthur ag and uh william from hoop dreams i that just i just kind of lucked onto that and yeah. uh, Arthur came over, and we, I, I thought I was just going to do a real quick interview, three or four minutes with Arthur, and then uh, Will came over and started walking back and forth in front of the camera, and then he was eating something, and I said, you know, come on, come back over, Will, you know, let's, you know, let's all talk. And you can kind of hear my voice a little bit on the video saying that. And they seem very and, excited to, to, to participate. Well, you know, for them, it's interesting it's it's 21 years since Hoop Dreams, but actually for them, and they, I think they talk about it in the video, or I might have edited that out, it's actually almost 30 years for them, because it started out, Hoop Dreams, I mean, it was actually a basketball, going to be about a basketball documentary about just local, um, you know, kids playing basketball in parts of Chicago, and that morphed into Hoop Dreams. So for them, it's been... You know, like almost thirty years since all this started. So yeah. that's it's a long their time. life. It's the, it's their whole yeah, life. That's, well, you know, they defined mentioned that by, I asked and, them, and a big yeah. part of their life defined by this movie. I mean, because this is oh, one yeah. of the most acclaimed documentaries of the past quarter century. Well, what's interesting, I asked them, and you'll you'll see it on the video. I said, you know, after all that time, how did you did you just not think about the camera? It was just gone. They said it was like home movies we just didn't we had to continue our lives and it's been going on you know been filming for seven years or, or eight years something like that and it's like 
it's just like home videos. You just it's it's Uncle Steve and you know Uncle Alex mm-hmm. and and you know that's how they thought about it. So they just you know to a to a sense they did forget about it. You know. Yeah, you know that's so fascinating to me how if you're if you're followed by cameras for that many years. And that passage of time, and to look back at it—I mean, we all have our interior idea of what, who we are, and what we're like. But I wonder if it's kind of a shock looking back and saying, "Is that who I was then?" You know, because you're looking at it through the filter of someone else's perception of you. Mm-hmm. Um, it's interesting. And and so, what is it like when you get a room full of drunken documentarians? <laughs> well, actually, I didn't think I'd ever ask that different. question. If you see if you see some of the pictures from this is the the Harris uh, rooftop which they rented out it's actually part of the Park Service that runs this the Harris Theater doesn't actually run it and I found that out because there were Park Service Rangers that were letting people in and doing different things so it, it's actually got a big dome like a half dome to it which amplifies the sound so when you're doing events like that it was you know the sound can really take over from your, your interviews. You've got to be very close to the person. And um, everybody was very nice. Uh, you, I don't think a lot of them are have, are used to being interviewed at all. Um, and, uh, you know, I did get try to get some people or was able to get some people that were the subjects of the documentaries, which is what I was hoping for. Um, we, we weren't able to get Steve James, which was kind of a disappointment, but I, I can understand. But it was, it's hard when you don't have someone. At most of these events, you really have to have two people, not only to help you film and for sound, but actually to round people up for you. So I had yeah. some interns that were helping me. They'd only been there at Cartemquin for about a week. And they were helping <laughs> me a little bit. And then Sarah, who's part of the public relations, was helping me and a couple other people. So it was just kind of catch as catch can, and I was just... I, had a, I printed out every single person that works at Cartemquin that's on the Internet that I could get. It was like an inch thick. So I had all these, <laughs> all these printouts of the, of the, with the person's photo and, and what they did there. So I would, mm-hmm. I would kind of look around and say, well, I kind of recognize that person. And uh, if I did, I'd, I'd just speak to them. But I couldn't go too far away from my equipment. So, um, but I think everybody had a really fantastic time. Um, and it was it was a pleasure and an honor to go to to go film there and and talk with these people. And you did a terrific job. And I mean, just catching well, a glimpse you. of some of the some of the homework that you brought with you there. I mean, almost kind of like a military precision. I mean, you were you were ready to go. And to, Tim Quinn has been very uh, receptive in the work that you've done there as well. I mean, they've retweeted and reposted and, and spread through social media a lot of the work you've done, which. Our listeners can find youtube.com slash moviegeeksunited. If, if you like Hoop Dreams, go take a look at our video. I think it's a good video. It, it costs yes. them. It, it shows them. It shows their camaraderie, I think, over the years a little bit and how they, you know, even if, and they stated this in the film, even if they don't see each other for a while they, and they come back together, they can still finish each other's sentences. It's just, it's pretty interesting mm. and, and uh, very nice uh, to I see I feel that. the same way with Jerry. <laughs> let me ask you a question, Rich. I, let me uh-huh. ask you a question. Um, we're, we're talking about documentary films, and we've had a cancer in that regard, and that's reality television in the last 16 years. Um, 
how do these guys feel about reality television? Because it is a cancer on the documentary filmmaking world. Um, I don't care what anyone says. I think reality television is the, how should I say, it is, is dumbed down the population to a point that it's frightening. Um, the same way that social media has in the last six, seven years. So how do they feel about reality television? Because that, that has cut into what would we would consider documentary filmmaking. Well, you know, I don't, I don't know if they even think about that, Jerry, because, you know, they, when they go out and film, you know, they film thousands, I mean, in some instances, hundreds and thousands of hours of footage, and then, and then they look at it, I mean, and it's like, so in a way, it kind of is, a, uh, I guess, like television in a sense, but their main thing, I was talking, and I hope to edit it together and give it to... Uh, to uh, to Jamie is I, I met I was supposed to meet with someone at at the Expo 72 which is the retrospective on their work for their 50 years worth of work with their cameras and equipment and and photos and and at the beginning of the hoop dreams you see some of the photos and mementos from the shoot and um, I was talking to Heather uh, McIntosh who does the blog for POV and it's, it's worth looking at, at that on, online as well. But she was saying, basically, Cartemquin has a very organic view of all these things. They're not set into just one way of cinema verite or not cinema verite. It's just whatever it ends up being. Right, right. You know. So, I don't know if that answers your question. Or... No, no. It's going to be great. Let me, let me just add something. Let me add something here to, to answer the question. Just recently... <clears throat> for Al Jazeera TV, uh, I guess in December of last year, they released a uh, great piece of documentary filmmaking, but also of, I guess, reality television. So it's called Hard Earned, and it's a six-episode, uh, six-hour piece um, that deals with various people around the country who are living from paycheck to paycheck, uh, and uh, and trying to get by on very very low wages, and um, it's directed by six different directors or six different subjects. So uh, each director was assigned a person to follow, and they really cut together all of those things, uh, all of those stories into these episodes. Uh, and uh, I watched all of it just recently, and it is—it's superb. It is one of the great pieces of, uh, of documentary filmmaking and reality television, really, since it premiered on TV. I suppose it has to be considered that. It's all—it's a very—it's <clears throat> a sort of a verite thing, in that there's no. Uh, there's there's not really a, a a lot of talking heads or anything like that. It's really uh, it's really just following them through the details of their day. Right, right. And uh, it's it's superb. So so I think that they've found a way <clears throat> a way to sort of marry those two concepts. Uh, well, I think, well, I think in, when it, I think of reality TV, I think of setting up certain situations. Uh, almost like they shot Blair Witch and 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 directing it to a certain effect. When right. I think of great documentary films, I think it, I think the main difference is it just takes time. It, it you have it, there's a lot more cultivation in documentary films. I mean, we're talking about yeah. hoop dreams that took 
that took years and years to assemble and find the heart of what it was, uh, and, and, and other works uh, that just take a lot of time. It's not kind of a throwaway, cheapy thing to do, to put on a, a yeah. dumbed-down thing to put on primetime. I, I do think we're talking about two different beasts, even though the two can connect in some way. Uh, I mean, Al Jazeera does brilliant stuff, but their stuff is more investigative and not the style of reality TV we're necessarily right. talking yes, about. Yes, I mean, they're, they're I, doing what reality TV should be. <laughs> you well, know. Yeah. Well, That's very true. But if I could mention one thing, I did talk with Maggie Bowman, who is the, uh, the series producer for Hard Earned, and I did interview one of uh, Dijon Jackson, who was in the first episode with the young man who was working at the pharmacy, pharmacy I think mm-hmm. it was Walgreens or someplace. And then he was working for the Fight for 15, which is trying to get people the $15 wages per hour. But what she was saying when talking about developing and how the series progressed is that when the problem she had with allergies, well, not a problem, it's just that they weren't used to a series going as long, being shot as long. And most reality TV is, you know, shot very quickly. But mm. the hard-earned, I think, took like a year and a half or something like that. It was, it was longer than, you know, any... And that was with six directors working. So, you know, probably if you add up all of their time, it really took six years or seven years, you know, because you got got six directors working at the same time. I wouldn't qualify that as reality television. I think think reality television is like the dumbing down, like the Duck Dynasty or the Survivor kind of thing. Uh, yeah, and that, I think the six that, people I think in the this, same you know, house. That was something and... that a couple, a couple of years ago, and, you know, a lot of documentary filmmakers were concerned because they're like, is this what people think of when they think of documentary filmmaking? Um, and, and with the general public, you do have to take that into consideration. Um, I think if the general think... public thought to themselves, I'm sitting down when they watch reality TV, if they if they thought to themselves, I'm sitting down and watching a documentary, they wouldn't watch it. <laughs> no, no, they wouldn't. I mean, all you have to do is, you, how do I say this? It's like something, unfortunately, something like Celebrity Apprentice to them is, re- is realistic. And right. that's a very frightening thing. Um, Which I, that, I always love Celebrity Apprentice because I knew it wasn't realistic. Like, I, I, you know, but baby, I watched it. You're the minority in that. I know. I know I am. Rich, you're welcome to stay on with us. If you can manage to get a word in edgewise, that will be very brave of you. <laughs> well, that, hey, that's kind well, we're going to talk about Ghostbusters, I guess, okay now. So, oh, okay? okay, let's talk about Ghostbusters. Did everyone see Ghostbusters except for me? Uh, yes, oh, you didn't you see it? I, I, saw, I actually no. did go see it, and, and it, it was actually not as bad as everyone said it was going to be. So I, <laughs> you go in with the lowest expectations, you'd be amazed what you come out with. It was better than uh, Ghostbusters 2. It was <laughs> a bowel movement. M- much better. <laughs> no, it is, you know, yeah. it is actually. Let's, let's, let's be very honest. What did we say a couple months ago? We said that Kate McKinnon would be the MVP, and she is the MVP of the movie. Um, there, there's no doubt about that. Um, it is much better than the second Ghostbusters, but it has the same problem as the second Ghostbusters. Which is uh, what? is that it was, I'll never forget what Sigourney Weaver said when the second one came out. We did this one for the kids. These movies are all, how should I say, they're kid movies. There's no yes. escaping that. Um, I think when you have an animated series in between the, the first and the second movie, I think it's safe to say you have a children's movie. 
Um, mm-hmm. but this one works a little bit better, I, I think, because it, it's like I think the first half of Ghostbusters 2 is very good um, when they're all separated, and it's like where have they been kind of thing is very good. But as a whole, it, it could never equal the first one. I, it, it doesn't matter what you, mean, you have the whole cast coming back, but you could never replicate that. Um, this one is well, a if this, if this because, one's for kids, what, what would like a Bergman Ghostbusters be? Since he was so into uh, mortality yeah. and <laughs> I think that's Hour of the Wolf. It would be hour like Hour of the Wolf. Of the yeah. wolf. Would the ghost like be playing chess on the beach with the guy? No. <laughs> Uh, or Fanny and Alexander's all about ghosts too, so uh you know, there's there's tons of ghosts in that. So this Ghostbusters is not like that. I I just want to get that clear. It's <laughs> although, not like that. Although Fanny and Alexander is a Ghostbusters kind of movie, uh I mean uh, God that last scene and Fanny and Alexander rivals anything I've seen lately. Uh, here's what I yes. heard. I, I, I didn't see the movie, uh, because I don't leave the house, but this is what I heard. Um that it's 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 fine. It, it, it's good, especially if you keep your uh, expectations in check. That it's a perfectly agreeable, enjoyable movie, and then it dissolves like so many of these movies into a, a nonstop CGI fest. That's absolutely true. That, yeah, that, that all the all the laughs disappear. My memory of the original Ghostbusters is that it's funny all the way through, even when it's more quote unquote serious. Uh, elements, the ghost and Zool and all that stuff come into play. And, because of uh, Bill Murray, uh, it, right? It, it, huh? What now? Because of Bill Murray and his sarcasm playing against that. Yes, yes. Yeah. But it's it, all, all, and, and uh, you know, to a certain extent, you know, Harold Ramis and Aykroyd and Hudson. But, uh, I, and also uh Rick Moranis, you know, is another mm-hmm. character. There's no character in this movie that kind of uh mirrors the Mick, Rick Moranis character. No, but not just uh, uh yeah. So he was he was responsible for a great number of laughs in the original too. It does resol- resolve in a, you know, typically over CGI'd way that really didn't um, didn't add anything in the humor department. It basically ceases to be a comedy, uh, and uh, it has a real strange thing where they uh, somehow they revert back to 1976 era uh, uh, New York. I don't know why why that happened in the movie, but all of a sudden you see old new old 70s New York in the background, uh, and uh, you know with. Uh, posters for Taxi Driver and, and and things like that, Fist of Fury and stuff on the on the marquees. I, I still am not sure why they did that, uh, why that happened. Um, the movie is uh, is pretty funny up to that point though, uh, with Kate McKinnon, who I have to confess I was a little disappointed with Kate McKinnon because I thought that she was over overacting. <laughs> in a lot of ways, I don't trying think she's to. Got enough to do. I mean, quite frankly, well, she I don't didn't have she... enough to do, and so she shunted over to the side. She didn't have enough great lines. They really gave a lot of the great lines to uh, Leslie Jones playing the uh, playing the uh, oh, yeah, MTA yeah, no, worker. I, I always feel she gets to laugh last because of who who she's related to in the movie. Um, yes, <laughs> and. Uh, uh, 
uh, also Chris Hemsworth is very funny as the sort of uh, boy toy kind of uh, secretary, uh, dunderhead yeah. secretary that they hire. He gets He's a, a lot of laughs. He's still smarter than <laughs> yeah. anybody I work with, though. But I mean, I, he plays a great moron, and uh, I, I really, uh, I thought that um, Melissa McCarthy did not register in any way on the humor scale in this, which was unusual, because I really liked, uh, <clears throat> you know, I like Bridesmaids, uh, the Paul, that, that's a Paul Feig movie, that's why I mentioned it, and also uh, I, I like Spy, I never saw The, the Heat, but... Uh, no, they're, they're all good, but in, even in even in the, in the Spy movie, the Spy belongs to Jason Statham more than anybody else, so... Um, I, well, I mean, he's great at it, but she's she's funny in it too. I mean, let's let's give her the you know. I mean, he's the, everybody's good in that movie. Uh, right, right. That's, but that's I, a top he, notch he does, comedy doesn't film. Doesn't register. Doesn't register in this. I mean, I, I think it's really you know Kate McKinnon and and also Leslie Jones. I think Kristen Wiig is all right, but she's sort of really restrained in this movie. Very um, restrained. I thought she only had you know a couple of scenes that really used her uh, her. Uh, humor really well. I thought the happiest, the funny one of the funniest scenes in the movie was just because it was so joyful in a way. Was the scene where she's dancing with uh, Chris Hemsworth in, the, yeah. in their in their office. I, for some reason, I thought that was hysterically funny. So, uh, so we have we but, have uh, the Ghostbusters. The, you know, the Ghostbusters are present. Chris Hemsworth, for all intents and purposes, is playing the Andy Potts role. Is there anyone doubling in for Rick Moranis? No. No, there's 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 no Rick Moranis. There's no there's no love uh you know, love interest for any of the characters, so therefore there's no Sigourney Weaver type in it. Uh so uh so they they didn't quite reproduce the movie, the original movie completely. Uh um but uh but it does generally follow Follow the trajectory of the original film, and uh, some some shots look you know directly out of the original film actually. But yes, that's uh, that's, the, that's the kind of thing that's unsettling is that wow, you guys really didn't bother. It's almost like you're tracing over the original film in in, in certain sequences. Um, there's particularly not a lot of originality. There's not yeah, a lot think- of originality here. But let's be very honest. It is a funny film. It's not the thing that everyone like the and the. What do we want to call these people online? Ghost brothers, bros. What do we want to call them? Ghost bros. I mean, what the hell do we want to call these people? So, uh, sexist malfeasors. Let's, let's call, call them, them losers. Um, losers. Um, Rich, this is so much- what, what did you, what did you think of it, Rich? Can you guys hear me? Yes. Yeah. Oh, okay. I didn't know if I was on it or not. Uh, um, I, it's a great movie for the family. It's a great movie for kids. You, you got a good amount of laughs in the film. What I found, and I, Dean, you know, I edit quite a bit, and Dean likes to edit as well. I thought some of the edits were a little strange, though. Like, they cut them a little too early. The laughs were like, the timing wasn't right or something, which I found interesting. Mm. Did you notice that, Dean? Like I when didn't they're, really, I, I didn't really notice that, uh... But it does feel. I will say this, and what I did notice is that the movie feels kind of rushed. Oh, <laughs> yes, exactly. Oh my God, it's a very quick movie. Um, very fast. Well, I mean, I mean, rushed in a bad way, though. I mean, rushed right. in the sense that it feels like uh, it feels like they didn't put the proper work into it. 
Uh, oh no, um, no, there's that. Oh, that's definitely there. I mean, that's the, that's not just a problem with this movie. That's a problem with a lot of movies over the last yes. decade. They just feel True. they want to get them out there. Um, and I mean, I I won't lie to you. I I see it in the Independence Day sequel, which they had 20 years to make, and it feels like they made it in two days. <laughs> yeah. Um, it's, and that's a really bad movie. I mean, that's not even... And it's not even... I was talking to someone the other day. We don't have good, bad movies anymore. We just have bad movies. We don't right. have... We don't have the luxury of even laughing Those, at these movies. Like, like, fun, bad movies? Fun, bad movies, like, are probably being made for the VOD market. They're not really being made for theaters. What we get into... You're absolutely right. What we get into the theaters is just bad movies that are dull. You know, very dull. I mean, there's nothing about them even worth thinking about. Yeah, I mean, uh enjoying on anything. I don't put Ghostbusters in that category. Ghostbusters, at least, is fun at least. But a lot of these movies, a lot of these sequels or reboots, you know, especially this year, have just been uh, wretched. I mean, and they're not. Let me ask you. Let me ask you one last question about Ghostbusters. How are how are the cameos from the original cast handled? Well, uh, they're nice and surprising, and yeah. uh, I, I particularly liked Dan Aykroyd's. I thought that was the only one that gave me a laugh. Uh, but uh, but Ernie Hudson's is memorable, and uh, and and so is I guess Sigourney Weaver. But, I think Sigourney uh, Weaver's takes the cake. I think Bill Murray's is is the one that sort of falls flat. Um, it does. And, and you know, I, I almost feel he's doing the outtakes from his character from The Cradle Will Rock. Um, to be honest with you, um, but yeah, or uh, you know, I mean, like, and and Annie Potts, you know, has a, a a quick one, a very very quick one that's not very funny, but uh, but she's in there. It's nice to see her. And, uh Andy yeah, Garcia so. is actually very funny in this. Um, Andy Garcia is in it. He's oh, the wow. mayor. He's the mayor. And he, Look, there's this huh. whole lot, there's this whole scene, don't compare me to the mayor of Jaws, don't compare me, and that I <laughs> that thought was, was funny. very funny. Yeah. That I thought was classic. Um, I I was surprised, here's some other things that I'm being reminded of now, I'm surprised at the amount of really bald-faced uh, uh, product placement in it, like, uh, well, I remember particularly being surprised that here we are in the middle of New York, and there's a scene with the uh, with the Ghostbusters sitting around eating uh, uh, Papa John's pizza, which I don't think would sit well with the uh, <laughs> with the with the liberal, I guess you know, love fest going on for this girls' movie. You know, like you know, here's this Papa John's pizza, and Papa John's is not known for their uh, liberal uh, mindsets. But uh, I, but I just thought it was rather than it just being about Papa John's, I just thought, well, there's a thousand uh, pizza places in New York. Why would you have to go to a Papa John's? But yeah. it's so obvious why it's there, and and there's a lot of there's a lot of that in there, which I, I don't really understand uh, in a movie like this. But guys, can I say I one don't thing like though? It. Yeah, go ahead. One 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 thing that's a little interesting that's a little bit different is that you know back in the 70s and 80s you had you had guys working on films that were that knew Pratt Falls and they knew how to do timing and how to do these things it seems like the Pratt Falls and the practical effects that they did in the film 
kind of fell flat. It's like, what what happened to all the good gag guys in Hollywood? Yeah. You know, where have they gone? It's like there there were things that should have been funny that just weren't funny. You know. Well, well like for instance, like for instance, you know, unfortunately, um, most of the people going to see this movie because first of all, they wouldn't know what we're talking about. Yeah. Um, that's the sad. That's the sad state right there. They really don't. Most of the people I know watching this are watching on my computer screen as they speak. Sadly, so that's really lost on them. Um, so, I but mean, like, you, there's yeah. the there's the scene, like for instance, where Melissa McCarthy loses control of one of the um, one of the gadgets that they have to fight the ghosts. Mm-hmm. And that's just a scene that just falls extra flat for me. I mean, like... It, just, it should have worked, and it didn't. And you know, it also, probably the most embarrassing part of the entire movie for me was that uh, was that long scene in the um, quote-unquote metal show. It wasn't really a heavy metal show, but it was a band that used to be heavy metal and is now... Uh, sort of quasi-metal, and, and uh, they're opening up for Ozzy Osbourne, who has a cameo, by the way. Yeah, and, that, that, uh, how much, do they have to pay him a lot of money, or are they just happy he was sober? He probably, he probably just wandered it, in. He didn't know where he was. Yeah. <laughs> he, he looked like he, it really looked like they filmed him in front of a green screen and just green screened him <laughs> in, but uh, so what it did. So was that that opened up for them? What band was that that opened up for us? I, I don't think it was a real band. It was like a fake They're band. But it was figure it, out. Do I have albums by these guys or not? <laughs> no, it was a it was a fake band. I'd never heard of the band before. Not that that means anything, because I haven't heard of half of the music that's out there. But uh, <laughs> uh, they, they was just an embarrassing scene, I thought, and way too long. And of course, a demon, you know, a ghost, a demonic ghost comes in, and they make it part of the show. And uh, I just didn't think any of that worked, really. Um, but uh, you know, I mean, there's well, still a lot of good stuff in it. It's it's a movie that I would put in the not bad column. Like I didn't hate it, but it did get very. I did feel that it got very tiresome in, in its ending. I just like okay, I'm over well, this it, now. Well, it, it it opened uh, fairly well at 46 million uh, to finish off at number two. Number one is still the Secret Life of Pets. But the blockbuster of the summer, outside of Finding Dory, Secret Life of Pets, make yeah, um, yeah. the only the only family film that hasn't done well this summer is uh, Spielberg's. (laughs) That's true. Isn't that weird? Uh, Yeah, that is odd. But but, hey, let me ask this: Is it doing better than Tintin? I have no idea. I don't know how Tintin did. Um, I only saw one movie, really, in the past month, and it was on TV. Uh, Freeheld. Have I, any of you guys seen Freeheld? Oh yeah, yeah. This is the um, the um, the lesbian movie. Yes, yes. Uh, so I know. Julie, I saw oh the right. Theater, actually, I saw this in the theater. Yes. So yeah. Julianne Moore and Ellen Page are are lovers. She's on the police force. She's higher up in the police force. Well respected. She keeps her sexuality a secret. She gets diagnosed with uh, terminal cancer. Wants to get. She's married to Ellen Page, so wants to give her the the house and 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 her pension and all that kind of stuff. And uh, she's voted. She's denied that because she's lesbian. <clears throat> it's a true true court case and a true case. And 
you know, it hits all the beats that you expect, and God knows by the end of the movie, I was in tears. It's 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 very shameless, shameless at the end of it. <laughs> oh yeah, <laughs> such oh, a God, sucker yeah. for those. I have a sucker for those, and I'm sorry. Julian Moore is a wonderful actress, and she's the reason to see it. She and Michael Shannon, who plays her partner. Uh, but uh, is, is Julian Moore going to play every sick and dying person on, on the planet? It feels like that's the trajectory her career might be going I on. Thought the same thing while watching it is, it, and this is what we we've talked about this before. Are these movies that are Oscar bait movies now? And this is obviously yeah. an Oscar bait movie. I'm sorry. Um, are they all just going to be what we what was that one time TV movies of the week? Is that what we're yeah. going for now? There's I mean, a little there's a little feeling of that. That's that. kind of what it is. Yeah. There's a little feeling that's of that. Right. But the overriding sensation I had watching the movie was, uh, I like Ellen Page fine. But she looks like a 12-year-old boy. So, especially in this movie, she looks like a 12-year-old boy. So I was seeing this woman, I don't know, Jillian Moore, probably approaching 50, with a 12-year-old boy. And it, it felt at times like I was watching An Open Secret again. Uh, and it just kind of... Or Hard Candy, too. It took me out, it took me out of the movie. Uh, it was just too distracting. I mean, she looks and, and like. And by the like way, Nunez is there any kind of like controversy? I mean, the movie was hardly hardly seen by very many people. But had it been a bigger movie, would there have been any kind of controversy about this fifty-year-old woman with this twenty, twenty-four-year-old? I don't know. I, you know, and I have no problem if she looks of legal age. But it looked like Julianne Moore was married to Malcolm in the Middle. Uh, it it, <laughs> it just took me right out. So. Wow, there's a, uh-huh. there's a movie I want to see, Frankie Moon's and uh, <laughs> <laughs> Hey, I'd pay a well, dollar to see that. I watched, uh, uh, I finally watched The Nice Guys, and I have to say that um, <clears throat> I, lo- I loved the performances of particularly Ryan Gosling. I thought he was very funny in it. Uh, you know, I like... Uh, Russell Crowe, fine, and I especially love the uh, the young actress they got to play uh, Gosling's daughter, yeah, yeah. Uh, uh, Angori Rice. Her name is Angor Angori Rice, by the way, and I just keep saying Angry Rice, Angry Rice. I like that is that her name? Angry Rice. But uh, I, I love these these three performances. They're very good in it. But the movie itself, to me, was kind of a mess. I mean, it's it felt kind of jumbled up, and and uh, I, I wasn't really sure of it, it. It was kind of like a like a, a kind of confusing mystery, like The Big Sleep, but it didn't have all those great characters at The Big Sleep, or even Inherent Vice is another confusing mystery that's enlivened by great. Uh, great character performances, you know, one scene here and there. Uh, I didn't feel like this had that to to uh, to you know enliven. It's kind of a kind of foggy kind of mystery, and um, I I also felt just it felt like big swaths of it were had been cut out or something like. Uh, you know the the young girl is going away from the uh, being sent away in a taxi cab uh, from the porn party, and then all of a sudden she's at the porn party, and I'm like, what? They <laughs> explain any I of this? To, I'll, I'm going to step in here because I don't really step in that much anymore. 
I would have to say The Nice Guys is the really the best movie of the year so far. Um, I agree with you about Inherent Vice, but I actually think it's the logical sequel to Inherent Vice. Um, I actually do think it works kind of as a sequel. Um, as a sequel? I mean, really? Yeah. I, I, yeah. It doesn't um, have any of the feeling of Inherent Vice. Oh, no, no, like, no, 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 no. Let me, let me explain what I'm... Both Inherent Vice is about the end of the 60s and sort of like the beginning... How should we say it? Really, the coming of like Reagan. Uh, oh, I see what you're saying. But here we get that we get like the era of Reagan is well underway. The age of Reagan. Yes. Coming of the age. Well, frankly, it looks like a movie that was shot in the 80s. It didn't look like a 70s movie at all. I mean, and plus they get a lot of the details of the 70s wrong. I mean, they get a lot of the songs wrong. You know, <laughs> I think like, I think you know, that was intentional. I think it was a running joke that they were getting shit wrong because even the Jaws two poster was was being displayed a year before yeah, it even yeah, came yeah. out. I mean, a, yeah, I mean, I, people were like, you know, eighteen on that. But I have to say, as far as movies go, I haven't seen anything as good as The Nice Guys this year. And I've seen a lot of good movies this year, but The Nice Guys is far and away the best thing I've seen this year. Um, and I, and I, I wish I, I wanted to agree with you. I really did. I know, I know uh, you. I, I know that. Um, but it's just—it's very well done. And look, I mean, look what we're. How, how do I say this? I mean, I, I think all four of us on this show can agree that we are, you know, in another year, twenty years ago, we may not have, we might not have even considered this film, but we sort of have to consider it now because we're just up against such shit. Well, we're that's what stuck. I'm saying. I agree completely that the bar yeah, I mean, has been so lowered <laughs> that a movie like this now seems like one of the best movies of the year, simply yeah. because it it uh, it doesn't conform to the template that most movies conform to now. I and I, so, I, I, I I like I the attitude of it. I, I liked the uh, and I, I like the stars. I, I like them together. the The plot itself was kind of inconsequential. There were moments that were really great, like that. Even even visual moments when that guy falls off the off the roof and splatters. That was great. That was <laughs> yeah, yeah, really yeah, that's but, 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 I agree. I mean, I agree. I mean, Dean, don't get me wrong. I agree with you, um, to an extent. But I mean, the, the the movie that I have to say. I mean, I like. I know you didn't like Green Room. I like Green Room. But if I was to have to really go and say what the the, the most original cathartic film of the year, I'd have to say there too. The Neon Demon and the De Palma documentary, mm. which are somehow both related in one sense because you can't have one without the other. Um, you could—I don't even know if you could have the Neon Demon if Brian De Palma had never been born. Um, I, I now really, you know, I, I sort of basically inter, interconnected both of those films. But when you have going back to the Elian. Uh, Douglas um, book in the interview and everything, we're dealing with some of the most ignorant populations in the history of Western civilization. We, we're dealing with a thing that basically um, the films that we talk about on the show really don't matter to large swaths of the population. And, and that really concerns me. I mean, I'll take uh, a, a neon demon any day over most of the crap that's doing well right now. Uh, one of the filmmakers that I always wondered about, like, where's he been? Uh, because he made some big movies in the late 80s. Well, big movies. Movies with big stars. Um, Kiss of the Spider Woman and Ironweed. 
and yeah. a play in the fields of the Lord. Hector Babenko is the director's name, and uh, he passed away last week. Mm-hmm. Uh, and I just rewatched Ironweed, which months ago, which has to be one of the most depressing experiences you can never <laughs> you yeah. could ever have watching a movie. I- I really think that that had a, that and the double the double thing of that movie largely failing at the box office, even though it was uh, admired by some, and uh, and at the play at the, in the fields of the Lord, which I haven't even seen. Uh, so, uh, you know, I, uh, I, and I don't think a lot of people have seen it, but I think that that really kind of killed his career here. Uh, that was he, a big movie, which is a shame because because if you just take Kiss of the Spider Woman and Ironweed, uh, I mean his actors were nominated for Oscars. I mean mm-hmm. he, he made uh, which meant he made Oscar caliber material. You know who's yeah. great in Ironweed is Tom Waits. <laughs> yeah, uh, he's terrific in it. Yeah. Oh God. But anyway, I mean, I, I like I, I I love Ironweed. I think it's I think it's a very good movie. Got a great script and uh, and three terrific performances and Nicholson Streep and Waits and also Carol Baker is very good in it as as Nicholson's wife. Mm-hmm. Uh, I uh, um, I still think his best movie is uh, one of his Brazilian movies called Pichote, P I X O T E, which is kind of the. Um, are you talking about the one Brazil- from? Are you talking about the one from Brazil? Yeah, it's it was done in eighty one. Uh, oh my kind god, of that, a, that movie that movie dramatically affected my life. I couldn't. Yeah. I still remember parts of that. That was you yeah, know I, I tell people to see that film. You've got to see that film. I don't know. Have you have you guys seen the film? Other than Dean yeah, and myself? Yeah, no, no, no. We no. this you know when this guy died last week. I mean, I like that play at the field of the Lords. I think that's actually that was a good movie. Um, I mean, it's a great Tom Berenger performance, um, and just a very good movie and a very good Peter Matheson book. But no, this guy was a real director. I mean, there's no denying oh, yeah. that. I mean, he. I mean, this guy was a real filmmaker. You know, Pichot is a movie that actually, you know, it, it's very much like you can make comparisons to uh, to Louis Bunuel's uh, Los Alvados from the '50s, a movie mm-hmm. that a lot of people hold in high regard, uh, including me. And also, uh, much later, uh, City of God, the Fernando Morales uh, yeah. movie. Uh, and uh, Pichot actually was filmed in, in those streets of Brazil that are, so, that are incredibly dangerous and actually had as its lead uh, a young boy that was actually killed on those streets later on. Oh, my God, I didn't much, know that. Much, didn't of, know that. much of the same kind of violence that is portrayed in the movie. Mm-hmm. So, uh, yeah, he's, uh, you know, Pichot, I think, still stands as Babinko's, you know, great masterpiece. Well, you know what? The, the man made you feel something. I mean, how many movies now, and Dean, Dean and I have talked about this, and I'm sure you guys have as well. How many films do you see that actually, when you leave the theater, have made you feel something, no matter what it is? They, they seem to be afraid to do that now. I have only seen one movie, and that was yesterday, that honestly made me feel something. And that was Captain Fantastic with Viggo Mortensen. And Mm. that's the only movie that I've seen in the last couple of months that's really made me honestly feel something and and think about a lot of things that I hold dear to me. I can't say that. Even the movies I've liked this year, I can't say they've made me actually feel something. 
Um, Captain Fantastic, in essence, did make me feel something and really reevaluate some things um, in terms of the story um, and make me go, because it's, it's a very you know popular story, the idea that you would take your family and live off the land in the woods, yeah. away from off civilization. Right. Yeah, off the grid, basically. You know what it, and, and you know what it reminded me of? It reminded me of, it reminded me of in, in theme, Mosquito Coast. Yeah, that's, yeah. I mean, it's the logical sequel, I mean, in that sense, the logical companion piece to Mosquito Coast, the book and the movie. I mean, that's all you can think of through the first half of the movie is Harrison Ford's, you know, character. And, and, and which which was really fascinating, because, I mean, Mosquito Coast made 30 years ago, book written earlier. Could you imagine Ali Fox in the age of social media? Uh, I mean, <laughs> he, yeah. he would be he would be he massively would be. crazy to get out. You know? Yeah, I mean, yeah. <laughs> but, you know, yeah. yeah, no, to feel something, it's so weird to ask. I mean, I guess to an extent on TV, maybe, but I don't even know. I, I just... To, you're asking the audience. I think sometimes you're asking the the, the filmmakers and the, and the and the showrunners are too scared to make us feel anything. Um, well, I feel, I feel I feel less of this on television. I mean, at least the good television. You know, the uh, you know, I I feel like there's they're they're more willing to go to those places that uh, that uh, arouse. Emotions that are dormant. They want you to be interested in who the killer is. Hey, I want to just <laughs> mention this because, uh, you know, all of our. Uh, whenever I throw a question out there, our audience inevitably comes up with an answer. Uh, so, uh, being a collector of film scores, I don't think this was ever released in any country, but maybe someone in a foreign country listening tonight knows if the score for Ironweed. Is available on any format because I love I, I love that theme I love that score and I'd love to own it if a physical product's actually out there and available. Who's so the writer of the score? There. I forgot. I'd have to look that up. Maybe that would help. Like, Maybe that's part of the reason yeah. why I'm unable to find it. <laughs> <laughs> thank you, thank you for that. Hey, what year did uh, Iron Maid come out? What year was that? Eighty-seven. Eighty-eight. I remember saying DVDs or I mean uh, CDs or something or album back then. It's kind yeah, of, yeah. I mean back in the day, yeah. I can't find it anywhere, and I, I and I scour vinyl soundtracks every single day. So, hey, Warren Beatty's first directorial effort in 18 years. The trailer came out for it. Surprising in that it is a, uh, it's a it looks like a light comedy. Rules don't apply. A little too light yeah. for me. This is definitely not I mean, a Hector Bavinko like film. That, <laughs> yeah. I was kind of I, expecting a later period, since 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 Beatty is eighty, almost eighty years old. I was yeah. expecting an almost eighty-year-old uh, Howard Hughes. I was expecting him to be playing the older Howard Hughes. Yeah, that's, but he's not. He's actually jumping. He's actually playing Howard Hughes of like. You know the sort of the fifty-five-year-old Howard Hughes. Uh, you know, uh, still back in the fifties and going in front of the uh, going in front of the Senate to you know stick up for himself and so forth. So I was kind of surprised by that aspect of it, but definitely surprised by the um, the sort the of. Wacky romantic comedy aspect of it that uh, 
I, I just wasn't expecting And it that. doesn't look like he's the focal point. I mean, he might be the no, anchor he definitely in some was sense. No, he's not. Actor in it. But it really belongs yeah. to the two young actors, it looks like. It's a love story between the two of them. But I'm wondering mm-hmm. if Warren Beatty is the male version of Barbara Streisand, in that I, I just say that meaning terribly vain on camera. Uh, and I don't mind saying that about Streisand, because in her directorial efforts, uh, she, you know, I think she kind of ruined Prince of Tides in a way because she had to make her character front and center when you were really interested in Nick Nolte. And once Nick right. Nolte's character becomes very interesting, we got to put in a love story and, and make it about Barbara Streisand all of a sudden. Uh, mm-hmm. And you know, she has to be lit a particular way, and Beatty's very particular about his lighting. He'll spend days and days. <laughs> yeah, I shot. mean, I gotta say, I just, guys. I, I, I'm wondering if he's going to put himself front and center in the movie, if he's going to sabotage the movie in that way. Hmm. That was my I thought. mean, it, it, it doesn't look like it from the movie, from the from the trailer. It, it just it looks like a movie about those two, the Aaron, uh, um, Aaron Reich and uh, Lily Collins. Uh, it, yeah. it looks like it's about them. So. I gotta say, it just doesn't look like. I mean, maybe Town and Country should have been the last movie. Uh, I gotta say, this does not look no, great. Guys. No, the la- the last movie should have been the one he made before Town and Country. <laughs> no, no, I mean, I mean, yeah, I mean, all things considered, Bullworth was Bullworth. If, if if he was a smart man, he would have said, "Hey, you know what? I've done all I can." Because I, I gotta say, this just doesn't look good at all. I mean, I could be wrong, but it just doesn't look that good. I mean, it, it looks like uh, it looks like Hail Caesar Part Two in some ways. <laughs> well, Hail Caesar, Hail Caesar had, had I think Hail Caesar at least had going, the Cohen brothers going for it, and with uh, some vignettes. This just looks like, like you said, Dean. I was expecting him to play the older, like the recluse Howard Hughes. You know, not this. I mean, the one, the one pissing in bottles. Yeah, yeah I don't yeah, can't I mean, imagine Beatty doing this that. This was not the but, one. I was not even that, but I wasn't expecting this though. I mean. I uh, hey, come no, on, this is Warren Beatty. He's so vain. Come I know. On. Hey, I mean, look, I've, I, I've been I've been talking about Warren Beatty's return to the screen for years. I really have, and I've been following it. I've talked about it on the show with great interest because this is the director of Reds and the star of Bugsy. I mean, he's such a major talent and a looming figure in cinema uh, for a, a period of time. But this isn't like the what I would view as like the last work of of a, a film artist like that. I mean, Hail Caesar's fine, but you don't want that to be your your epitaph with your reds. Yeah, I mean, yeah, I mean, yeah. it looks like, I mean, how do I say this? I mean, I mean, how how do you know is going to be Jack Nicholson's last role, it looks like, mm. and this is probably going to be Warren Beatty's last role, and it's a really sad yeah, but maybe and then you got the Gene Hackman's good. last role yeah. is Welcome to Mooseport. So maybe. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. I don't know. Okay. You know. So Stephen King front. Stephen King is uh, about to make a renaissance on the big screen, and they might actually be decent films. They got the first look at uh, Pennywise the Clown from the new feature film version of It. This first version is The Children. Then if this version is successful... They'll make the second part, which is, follows the adults, those children as adult characters, facing their deepest fears and that kind of thing. I, I always liked the book, It. Um, 
And then we have the Dark Tower. We have so many behind-the-scenes photos popping up of the Dark Tower, Idris Elba, Matthew McConaughey, Jackie Earl Haley is in the scene that they did behind-the-scenes stuff from. So all this broke last week. Uh, what's unusual is, well, first of all, that uh, there have been a few good, really good, borderline classic Stephen King films uh, since the 70s. But uh, we're always welcoming more good films because most of them are shite. But what, <laughs> what, else, is, what else is surprising is uh, these are big-budgeted movies. And this genre of movie uh, usually doesn't uh, warrant a big budget. Uh, how would a big-budget horror movie play? I mean, I, don't even, I can't think of the last $100 million budgeted horror film. What, what, what am I missing? Am I missing a World War big Z title? would be the last one I could think of. I mean, I would, okay. I'd say that. Yeah, that's true. But that's rare. I mean, that, that is very rare. rare. It's, it's very, very much so. Yeah, usually you're you spend right. ten dollars I mean, uh, on a horror movie, and usually when you spend ten dollars on a horror movie, your movie is better for it, because I think horror mm-hmm. movies work best when they're cheap. <laughs> well, let's talk about Stephen King for a second. There is a movie on demand right now, Cell. I haven't mm-hmm. watched it yet. I'm probably waiting for it to come on Netflix or cable. But that's was at one time it was going to be an Eli Roth directed um, movie. And obviously, it's not that now. It's got Samuel Jackson and John Cusack in it. Who John Cusack seems to be joining Samuel L. Jackson and doing anything that comes his way um, lately. But I, you know, I'm really and this surprised. is their second Stephen King movie together. Yeah, mm-hmm. I mean, you know, so. I'm surprised. I mean, the dark, they've been talking about the Dark Tower for so many decades now. Um, and I read somewhere the other day that this is actually a, these movies, this movie is a sequel to the the books. It's not even the books. I heard it's actually a sequel in many ways to the books. If mm, that makes mm-hmm. sense to anybody. Mm-hmm. Um, it, it's a little confusing. <laughs> yeah, I, I mean, mean, I'm very confused. How could you have a sequel if you didn't have a first part? Yeah, but I mean, they're actually going on the assumption that the general public, you know, has read the books. So. Has all read it? Oh. <laughs> Some of the people who don't read these books. That's a big or... assumption. Yeah, that is. Because, you know, how many people so read books now, that. anyway? I just read that in one well, they have to appeal to more people than have read the books. Oh, yeah, they have mm-hmm. to. So, so, it, so it, fits it. That, it fits that they would make a film, uh, take the series as a whole. And and make the most exciting debut film from it as possible. They take elements mm. and make you know because they're, they're not going to bet the farm on you know something that's not as dynamic as possible. You know. Right. Right. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. Hey, yeah. uh, Woody Allen's next film now, Cafe Society, came out in limited probably this weekend. I think. Yes. Uh, his next film will star James Belushi. J- oh, James Belushi. James Belushi is on a major film, and it's directed by Woody Allen. James Belushi's out there again. <laughs> Let's just ponder that a little bit. Yeah, I'm, I'm trying to ponder that right now. I'm having a lot of trouble. Um, that's, that's kind of surreal. Man, what was the last? What was the last major thing? The Ghost Rider. Uh, yeah, that's 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 oh, not right. um, yeah. Which was another surprising uh, uh, place for him to turn up on a Polanski film. Yeah. Uh, I'm yeah, taking care um, of business, but I would be wrong. But <laughs> uh, Juno Temple he's was in, in it. He's also in Twin Peaks, you know, coming up. Yeah, oh, yeah, yeah. 
Juno uh, Temple was in the new Woody Allen movie. What, wasn't she supposed to be the next big thing years ago, Juno Temple? Yeah, well, she, she was. Well, I mean, remember she was great in Killer Joe. Thing, so. I, li- I like her, but, you know. Yeah, but she ain't, she ain't that. Uh, uh, Justin Timberlake is in it, and uh, Kate Winslet. Uh, now, Kate Winslet mm. is primed for a great Woody Allen female character along the lines of uh, what Kate Blanchett did in that movie. Yeah. Uh, the Birdie Madoff movie. I can't remember the name of it. Blue Jasmine. Yeah, uh, Blue, Blue Jasmine. Yeah, Blue Jasmine. Yeah. I think Kate Winslet needs to work on that level, Woody Allen. So I'm hoping that maybe that's what this is. I don't know, though. Have we already written off this Woody Allen movie? No. I haven't. I think it's. I think it's going to be. Uh, you know, it might. It might be one of the ones that's worth uh, checking out. I mean, I'm personally just excited to see Vittorio Storaro, the cinematographer, uh, working with Woody Allen and wor- just mm-hmm. working again in general. Uh, no, 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 of course. No, I I agree with that. No, I'm just saying because the reviews were mixed on Friday. Um, but I, I, I can't wait to see it. I mean, I wasn't crazy about Irrational Man. I, I was very disappointed in that. Um, but I kind of I kind of like Irrational Man. Uh, I was disappointed. I, I, thought that, I didn't love it, but no, I, no, I liked it, it. It fed into, how do I say this? It it was it was what <clears throat> the world thinks of a Woody Allen film. Um, it was, a, you know, it's about just white people and their problems in Rhode Island. It was like, because it was filmed in Rhode Island, which is kind of weird, but it was like the epitome, because you, you can't get whiter than Rhode Island. Um, <laughs> you really can't. Um, well, you can't get whiter than Woody Allen. I mean, yeah. he's never had a... So I, like, don't think he's, I think he's had three black people in his entire every, film. Every stereotype of Woody Allen, because I was talking to several people about it after I saw it. And I was watching a little bit of it on cable last night. Uh, it's been making a round on. Uh, yeah, but 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 he but but it is it is is it a stereotype or is it just who he is? I mean, after I think after forty is, I was forty going, fifty years, he 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 does identify himself. I mean, and that's no, no, no. He, that's basically he, he it. Does, and and there are varying this, levels of whether it's good or not. Yeah, it this just felt like to me. I I, I wanted to really like it because like oh my God, he's working with Joaquin Phoenix. Um. Mm-hmm. Really coming off a hot streak, and it just reminds. It's kind of like to me felt like the outtakes of Manhattan Murder Mystery in, in many ways. Um, this this isn't the level of Woody Allen uh, collaboration where he he got a great actor like Sean Penn because the role demanded it. I mean, the role did yeah. not demand a Joaquin Phoenix. No, so that's, so that's disappointing. But yeah. No, no, but look, I want. I definitely want to see Cafe Society. It looks like. It has the potential to be vintage Woody Allen, I, I think. Um, and it'll be nice well, to look at, if nothing else. Yeah, you know? yeah, yes. I don't really have any other news other than Tom, Tom Sizemore ran over somebody. But that's, Who did you know, he run over? That's, that's anyway. Who did he run over? <laughs> he ran over a stuntman during the film. <laughs> oh, really? Movie. Damn it. That poor stuntman. Are we talking literally <laughs> or, or figuratively? No, in in a car. He drove over oh. with a he uh, in an SUV. Mm. It was an accident. Oh man, that sucks, uh, man. He he's somebody who really shouldn't have too many accidents because he's supposed to be, you know. I mean, I don't know if he's clean now or not, but uh, you know, I mean, he's definitely. Oh yeah, he's Doctor, definitely Doctor somebody who settled him out. Yeah. Mm. Yeah. Okay. <laughs> Well, he's. I don't think he can uh, handle too many sta- too many more staple marks on his uh, on his 
yeah. driver's license. So. I think the stuntman's <laughs> no, no, okay. No, 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 no. I don't, I don't no, know no, too no, much about it. The stuntman's okay. None of us uh, Hey, uh, next week we're going to have a show. Hey, the conventions, uh, the Republican conventions next week. So on that momentous occasion, uh, Tony and I will be speaking, Tony Macklin and I will be speaking early next week about uh, political films. So that will be a special show coming up next week. Tony and I okay. chew the fat on political films. So let me ask you guys first, great political films. Uh, me personally, I'm a huge fan of political conspiracy thrillers of the 70s. Mm. That's my favorite subgenre. Yeah. So all of those are great to me in varying degrees. But uh, you guys, politics, the world of politics and film, what, what strikes well, you? Well, I mean, I would go with like, like Bob Roberts, um, The Candidate. Um, all the presidents, man. I mean, the parallax view. Um, but there is one movie that, for this political season, it is not a great movie by any stretch of the imagination. But we can't not talk about Jonathan Demme's remake of The Mentorian Candidate. But with no other reason that Meryl Streep's performance is based on Hillary Clinton to it. Whether you want to, whether I mean, it was popular at the time that that's who her performance was based on. It really is. I mean, it's not a good film. I mean, it's a really, I, I'm sorry, I think it's a bad remake as was The Trouble with Charlie. And, uh, you know, let's remake that movie. Um, I don't know what Jonathan Demme was thinking during these times, but we have to really take that, we have to kind of talk about it because it was 12 years ago, that's all anybody was talking about when that movie came out. Um, Frank Rich included. Um, he was the first one. And never, you know, Frank Rich is op ed people in time, but it's been a long time since this is the most partisan movie ever released by a studio. It might not have been the partisan they were looking for because Meryl Streep was essentially playing a Hillary Clinton in the movie. Well, I mean, yeah, I mean, that movie, that movie came out with a thud. I remember watching that on opening day, and uh, it didn't capture me at all. No, no, it didn't. Uh, I mean, which is unusual I, for Jonathan Demme. But, you know, the candidate, yeah. uh, Redford, the candidate still holds up, I think. Yeah. I, I don't Very know much anyone. Uh, I mean, he plays an I- idealist, really. Uh, so I don't know if that would be so much true nowadays. You'd like to think so. Well, but it does. Let's no. Let's be. Let's be more clear about it. He plays an idealist that has to continually compromise until he doesn't know right. who he is anymore. So I mean, so I think that that happens quite a bit now. I think people are savvier about what politics is when they go in it, and they and they go in it because they are. I don't know. I don't know though. I, but it, it I does think seem, Bob Roberts it, though is like it might have seemed up. realistic back then in the seventies. Today, uh, it it feels like Frank Capra in a way, the candidate. <laughs> because mm, no, I, I, don't don't think, I don't feel that way at all. I don't feel that way. I think it's I think it's a dark movie. I think the candidate works um, very strongly. I look, guys. I mean, the other if you really want to know, you know, we we had we had. Pissed on the movie when it came out, but you know the, the the Brad Pitt movie Killing Them Softly, it doesn't get any more political than that movie. Forget that it's a gangster movie based on a uh, George B. Higgins book. The way Andrew Dominic filmed that movie, I'm sorry, that's your election movie this year. Killing Them Softly really is the movie about 2016. Um, it doesn't get any more political than that. I'm not just meaning that he's political, the speech about Obama at the end that, that closes the movie, um, the way that he, the machinations of the mob and everything, you could be usually talking about just the machinations of any political party, the Democrats or the Republicans. 
Um, it's how how shall I say this? That movie is the summary of what this year is about. I want my cut, and I want my cut is really the theme of the Republicans and the Democrats. It doesn't matter who. That's what I, that's that's what I mean. I mean that's that's yeah. the, that's the part. That's the part of Redford's character in the candidate that I think is outdated. Yeah. Because yeah, I think when people go into politics, they, they know exactly why they go into it. And, they're, and yeah. they're not completely closed-eyed to the realities of what that system is. Yeah. I mean, it's now, I still like the candidate. Redford, you, you, Redford used to be a great political filmmaker. Now he's making Pete's Dragon. So, so, mm. yeah. Well, I mean, that's, yeah, that's the way gotta, it goes. You've got to go where the money is, I guess. <laughs> I mean, you've got to follow the money. <laughs> for, for me, you know... For me, the great political movies are, uh, of course, you know, uh, you know, I'm not talking about political movies that say anything uh, uh, about where we are today. I don't, I'm not putting that in the. I don't think that every political movie has to say things about where we are. So I just take them as movies that are about politics. So for me, uh, you know. Uh, Mr. Smith goes to Washington. Will mm-hmm. always be there as as you know one of the high benchmarks. Yes, it's Capra Capricorn, uh, but uh, it's it's <laughs> I like it's I like some Capricorn. Of the best. I like that Capricorn. I like that. <laughs> well, I didn't coin that, but it it, it is uh, it, it is uh, great uh, Capra esque filmmaking, uh, and I think that it speaks to just the general. The general battle between, uh, you know, a newcomer trying to do the right thing and uh, being faced with a political machine trying to just go after the cash. Uh, Nashville, I still think, rings out mm-hmm. as a great political movie. Uh, uh, it particular, I remember seeing Nashville on the big screen uh, for the last time. Uh, I haven't seen it since uh, uh, during the Ross Perot. Um, election. Oh yeah, mm-hmm. uh, yeah. The, the, wow. that period, and that movie really sang out during that period because you had this. Uh, it has this, you know, the truck going through for the third party candidate that everybody's uh, uh, tub something for in the movie, Hal Philip Walker, and uh, that just sort of wow. This is a movie. That could have been made today. Of course, talking about in the '90s, it felt that way. It still feels, it still feels, you know, uh, fresh. And even though it's a movie about the music industry as well, it still feels, uh, you know, radically political. Uh, you know, going to uh, movies even before that, though, things like uh, Seven Days in May, mm-hmm. the John Frankenheimer movie. Which I think, in some ways, is a better movie than uh, *Manchurian Candidate*. Um, I, I would and, I would go with you there, just because I feel more at stake in that movie. I don't ever yeah. feel in *The Manchurian Candidate*, in the original one, even with, with uh, Frank. I don't even think there's a lot at stake. Mm. I think in Seven Days in May*, there's a there's a sense of grave danger to the country and the world. Yes, exactly. That's exactly what makes it makes it better and more exciting. Uh, being there, I think, is still yeah. a great. Uh, it's such a great film. movie. Being th- being there because it's both gentle and acerbic, and how mm-hmm. many people can do that? I mean, what yeah. a great tonality. It to definitely walks. That. Yeah, it definitely walks that fine line uh, between. Uh, well, I mean, it's always a somewhat cynical movie, 
But because of the gentleness of its main character and the fact that he doesn't even know that he's, <laughs> you know, yeah. that he doesn't even know the position he's put himself in, uh, he, he uh, it, there's just something about that that character that uh, and that performance that really soothes you. Um, mm-hmm. And I think I think that being there and a face in the crowd are two movies that yeah. are probably most prominent to in, in terms of contrast to today. Yeah, that come to yeah. my mind. I, well, yeah, absolutely. I, Viva Zapata with Brando is also another one there that I would mm. have to, It's not one that we talk about. Obviously, we don't talk about it that much, but there are scenes in that movie which I, I think are very political. Um, I agree. With, I mean, you can't, you can't talk about politics without bringing up, um, you know, Kaczynski's being there. I mean, it's just the nature of the movie. I mean, let's go with Network, too. Network is another mm. one that you have to talk about. Um, there are a lot. And we don't see these movies. We don't see movies like this being made anymore. I mean, I mean, I, 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 so I think the political movie uh, is a casualty uh, in recent years. That's why when, yeah. I, when, I, was, when I was talking to, uh, what's his name, from Turner Classic Movies, Mankiewicz, and he said, oh, I think political movies are doing great. I was like, "What? <laughs> really? Where are they? Well, what, 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 what are, we, are we talking about? The Eyes of the March, or the one that George Clooney did a couple of years ago with Ryan Gosling? He, 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 really... he mostly talked about George Clooney. Like George Clooney could still make a political movie. And and my point to Mankiewicz because he his his lineage is in you know legendary Hollywood and uh-huh. uh, politics. That's his lineage. So it, it stood to reason that I'd ask him about the state of political films. And he said, no, I think political films are doing great. And I said, I don't think they're doing great because I think people are scared to make a political film because the second you make a political film, you're alienating half your audience uh, right yes. off the bat. It can't, can't be right. That's it. it. And, and he, said, he, said, he said, I think that's and, a stupid argument. I mean, people are still, they're still going to get 20 million eyes in front of them, so uh, why do they need 40? And I said, you're saying that the – Studios don't want forty million eyes on them uh, on their movie. They just want twenty million. I, I, that's a stupid argument that you're making. I, we yeah. could not reach an agreement. I didn't see why he didn't understand what I was trying to say. Well, I mean, I'm trying to think of the political movie on a smaller scale, on an independent scale. There are still political movies being made, but on a very small scale, and they're usually documentary. It's like The Best of Enemies or something. Um, yeah. Right. Yeah, I mean, generally you know, it's a documentary that's political yeah, now. It's really sad that the the only movie made for movie I could come up with is a mediocre George Clooney directed movie, The Eyes of Mars, which is as we we talked about several years ago. Was it disappointing? I mean, you you could also add into that also George Clooney, uh, um, Good Night and Good Luck, um, uh, as a um, as an entry into yeah. that. I mean, but that's to a me good, the that's it ago. Yeah. To me, I mean, the the last really great political movies were done at the end of the '90s uh, with, uh, and I'm talking about narrative films. Uh, uh, I loved Primary Colors, uh, Mike mm-hmm. Nichols' uh, film about the the Clinton campaign, and uh, um, and especially loved Election uh, mm-hmm. and Susan Ruth. Uh, yeah, I mean, to, and Wag the Dog, and and Nixon's good. Yeah, I mean, the, yeah. Yeah, I, think, the dog, I agree. Um, that was the last great and, era for him. And the contender, yeah. Eddie the Murphy and the Distinguished Gentleman. I mean, come on. 
mean, I'll give you that. Compared to what we have today, I'll give you the distinguished gentleman. I'll, I'll, I'll throw that bone to you. And let me let me just bring up a couple more, and then you know we can move on. I can sense that we want to move on, but uh, you know the fifties was a great era. The fifties and the sixties were great eras for for these kind of movies, especially the early sixties, uh, which brought us, of course, Manchurian Candidate, but also brought us things like Advise and Consent from uh, um, Otto Preminger, mm-hmm. or uh, or probably the movie that's probably most germane to our discussion since the uh since the uh, conventions are coming up is uh Franklin Schaffner's The Best Man from sixty four yeah. with uh with uh Henry Fonda. Um actually Henry Fonda's also in uh in Advice and Consent as well. But uh that's that's about two pre- the best man is about two presidential candidates. Uh, combating each other to get the nomination at at the convention. So, um, and I don't think that they even mention what party they're in in that movie. But uh, mm-hmm. things like that, or things like Point of Order, the great Emil and Antonio documentary about the downfall of uh, of uh, Joseph McCarthy, that uh, condenses you know weeks of the Army McCarthy hearings down to mm-hmm. a manageable 90 minutes and it makes it very, very exciting. And <clears throat> finally, you know, possibly the greatest political filmmaker of all time, I would say, uh, certainly in, in modern times, is uh, Costa Gavras, uh, mm-hmm. the, uh, the Greek filmmaker who made uh, most famously won, in, won an Oscar for writing uh, Missing, uh, the movie about the uh, the overthrow of the coup in Chile mm-hmm. and the brutal Allende regime and uh, what how it affected a few Americans there, but also uh, also the Z, Z uh, which is possibly I would put that as maybe my number one, even though uh, you know it's not a movie that takes place in America, but I would I would put that as my number one greatest. Uh, Political movie, and, and, uh, and because it's bring up a great filmmaker who I watched his most recent film last week, uh, Capital, mm-hmm. um, which and, I think everyone should kind of watch just because it's about the financial system. Yeah, and it's about and it's about banks, and I just think he did he does such a good job. I mean, it's kind he did of a very like, good job with that. Mm-hmm. Yeah, I mean, it's kind of but you watch that movie and you're just like, my God, there's no hope. I mean, is that the one with is that the one with Gabriel Byrne? Yes. Yeah. yeah. Um, it's a very good movie. Um, but yeah, he it also is. made a movie back in 2002 called Amen about the second the Germans in the Second World War. That is very good. Um, which I think a lot of people, you know, that that went under the radar too. I mean, it's not that he's a great political filmmaker. He's just one of the great filmmakers in general that's still making movies that into his old age is still making movies. So, yes, you can... Yeah, but he, he's, regard- he's, he's always been firmly... Uh, I mean, he, he's he been kind of single-minded in, in, in exploring political themes, though. I mean, that's his thing, right? Kind of, he also made a movie... I, I still have... I've still got to watch it called The Axe, which is based on a Donald Westlake novel about downsizing in an American um, company yeah. that he made. Mm. And, and I would, I've still been wanting to watch that. He he's one of these filmmakers that consistently, I think, puts out good work. We don't. I mean, he doesn't get the credit he deserves. I mean, he's working socially on, like, conscious. I, 
Mm-hmm. He's he's consistent. Um, and it goes with that whole thing, oh, that filmmakers after the age of sixty don't do anything good. Well, he's another one that proves that's absolutely wrong. I mean, he's that's still great. he's still making great films. Another filmmaker like that was Sidney Lumet, who made one of the greatest movies. His last movie is actually one of those truly great movies before the devil knows you're dead. So, and that's mm-hmm. not a political movie per se, but um, it's still a very good movie. But Costa Garver's theme, I mean, you can't get much better than Z. I mean, if we're talking about, I mean, no, I mean, you know, for, that's, you know, I mean, he did state of siege in that same period. Mm-hmm. Did, yeah. Uh, state of siege and the confession. Both of those are, are extremely, uh, are in the wheelhouse of Z in terms of uh, their emotional effect and their and their uh, and their radical views. Yeah, and um, I Bertolucci. I mean, we can't yeah. have this conversation without 1900 Revolution, um, even the Last Emperor. Um, I, I would even throw in the Dreamer. The Conformist, of course. The Conformist, yes, definitely. That that was the first one I wanted to make. Yeah, I mean, you see, you know, Bertolucci was is making superb political films his whole life. Yeah. Yeah, it's odd that these are all foreign filmmakers that are still making political films. <laughs> Can I bring up one film? I, I think you guys might have seen this two years ago. All the King's Men with Broderick Crawford, who was directed that's by... That's uh, the granddaddy, as far as American yeah. films go. I mean, and Robert Rawson? Yeah, I mean... I mean, let's be very honest. I mean, we got, we have now, we have the, mo- I mean, it's an insult to Yui Long at this point, but we do have a Yui Long-like character is going to be a presidential candidate. So, I mean. And then, of course, Blaze, which I think is an equally great film about stripping. Uh, it's a great, it's a great <laughs> stripping film. Hey, what is Melina Davidovich doing these days? I mean. Uh, not Rod You know what? I saw her in something just recently. It was it may have been something for TV or something. Yes. Was it with Adrian Brody? Still out there. No, she was in something. I know exactly what you're talking about. I, I saw it. She played someone's mother, and she was living in a trailer park. I saw. Yeah. I watched it, and I, oh, I can't remember what it was. Hang on, I'm gonna have to look this up before we end the show, or it's gonna kill me. <laughs> <laughs> By the way, also in the political realm is is Spike Lee. You know, I mean, uh, mm-hmm. you know, for better or oh, worse, yeah. things like things like Do the Right Thing and Chirac, Chirac uh, uh, are are incredibly important uh, in this realm, Let's even though they're not. Malcolm X is a political film, and I mean, Malcolm X as well. Yeah, yeah. how was what happened with Chirac? It seemed like that came and and went pretty quick. Was how was that received? It. I mean, it, I like. It, I mean, I, I saw it, but it, I, I, I didn't even think it matters how something is received. If people aren't going to see it, I guess that. Yeah. I mean, that's true. I hate to say it, Spike Lee's exactly audience. If, if, we're if people aren't going audience. to, we are Spike yeah. Lee's audience, and what I mean by that is, um, like film fans, essentially, um, cinephiles are really Spike Lee's audience now. It's no one else. In them. I hate to say that, but it's true. I solved the mystery of Lolita Davidovich, which I think would be oh, a shit. great title for a movie. The mystery of that Lolita is. Davidovich. Yeah. Uh, she played Colin Farrell's mother in True Detective. Remember? Yes. Oh yeah! Oh my God, that's right. Holy shit! Yeah. And she was in a trailer. I knew I I had that image in my mind. Mm-hmm. There's something something incredibly hot about Lolita Davidovich in a trailer. I don't know what it is, but uh, there you go. <laughs> Wow, I have to go back and watch that now. Um, no, you don't. No, don't. Don't go back and watch no that. No one has to go back and watch that. 
And All by right, the guys. way, to, with political films, you can't get better than Warren Beatty's Reds. So Reds and Bullworth. It all comes back down around to Warren yeah. Beatty. Yes, I mean, Reds and Bullworth. I mean, Bullworth was, who would ever thought Bullworth would be kind of a bellwether of this year? I mean, Jesus Christ, I mean. <laughs> you know what's true. funny about Reds, though? When it came out, I was there opening weekend back in, what was it, 80, 81? Is that when Reds yep. came out? Yeah. Mm-hmm. There wasn't. There weren't many people. I was like, Three or four people in the whole theater watching Red, yeah. which was on a giant. I think it was seventy millimeter. It was like it was just it was a, so yeah. impactful. It was, a, it was and he's running three and a half. He's running three and a half hour movie about a communist. Gun. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> I mean you're you're rich. Look when the movie was released. Yeah. Um, mm. At the height of you know Ronald Reagan has just been you know has been president for a year and uh, everyone's a vicious anti-communist. I mean yeah, my, I mean I know people, we went to go. I didn't. I saw it on TV. And everything my parents saw in the theater, and you know the one complaint of that movie is they don't identify everyone in the interview sequences. I mean, I, I took a Russian Revolution class, and that was the first thing the professor said. I wish they would have identified everyone's name. <laughs> but you know, you know, if they had done that, is, though, that would have steered it a little bit too much into the documentary true, area. True. Oh yeah, and, yeah. I mean, with, so I'm glad that they didn't do that. I Even though yeah, I would, I mean. Nowadays, it's easy to find out the name, put a name to the face in that movie. Right. You can just go on online and find right. out no, 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 uh, who is who. But, um, but yeah, I'm glad movie. that they didn't do that. No, but it's a it great really movie, is. It, it really was an act of bravery just to think about making that movie. <laughs> and and how did it, it get made? I mean, if you think well, about it, it got it got made. Wow. It got made because they wanted to. Paramount wanted to stay in the Warren Beatty business. Paramount did not want to make that movie. But they wanted to placate Warren Beatty uh, because yeah, that mean, was star. That was star power back then. It's different now. It, stars don't have that kind of power. Yeah, I mean, but Charlie you, Charlie Bluedhorn, uh, who ran Paramount, said, oh, "Why are you spit?" He said, "I'll give you forty million dollars, and you can just take a vacation with it. Why do you have to make this movie?" And Beatty <laughs> said, "I'm going to make this movie, or I'm going to take it somewhere else." So they made yeah, it. Yeah, I mean, I mean, you got to remember. I mean. Yeah, I mean, people. I mean, we don't. I don't even know if we have movie stars anymore. Um, but at that time, that was a, that was you know you you know like the reason we have Ghostbusters is because um, Bill Murray wanted to be in the Razor's Edge, and he said, "Look, I'll do Ghostbusters if you, but we ha- I want to do the Razor's Edge. That's why we have Ghostbusters." Um, Beatty, in the uh, Beatty was so writing Dick Tracy with Bo Goldman. At a dinner yeah. table, I think whatever his original studio might have been Paramount didn't want to make Dick Tracy, so uh, he started getting dressed. And Bill Goldman said, "Where are you going?" And then Beatty said, "I'm going over to Disney. I'll be right back." And he went to Disney and he closed <laughs> the deal, and then he came right back. I mean, he, he, he did, <laughs> fine. You don't want to make my movie? I'll take it to another studio. And like five minutes later, he, he got it greenlit. Yeah, <laughs> that's clout. You know, yeah. I don't, do you have anyone like that today who could even no. do that? I mean, do we have any actors? I mean, I don't, I don't think, think so. I don't even think Tom Cruise could do that. Um, Tom, maybe Tom Hanks, but I don't think that he could get maybe a movie Tom Cruise. Made maybe about, Tom Cruise could, but the the difference is I don't think Tom, Tom Cruise is much interested in. No, oh, no he's he would. I mean, that's the problem. No, he's not going to do that. I mean, no. And I mean, and Hanks is only going to do. He might. He might, you know, 
he will do things like, you know, as political as he gets might be, you know, the Pacific or a Band of Brothers or something like that. Or Holly Graham really King, which isn't really yeah. that political at the end of the day, but I think that's his... I well, there's Charlie Wilson's War too. Yeah, that was uh, that was that, that was like all oh, that's nine years ago. I don't he's I don't even yeah. think he could do that. He could not do that now today. He could not get that. I don't think any even though we you know it's Mike Nichols, Aaron Sorkin, all those people. I don't think you could even get that. That would be on HBO today. I think that's a fair thing to say. I, I really do. Uh, I in like fact, movie. political movies pretty much live on HBO now. With things yeah, I mean, like speaking of Brian Cranston's. Um, the the Brian Cranston um, LBJ movie or yeah I mean you're absolutely right Dean I mean that's where they really live I mean there's you really couldn't get any of these movies that we've talked about made in a studio in a theater right now nope okay <clears throat> good discussion Guys, Rich, my I, friend thank can you can I say one thing one thing before okay. we we cut <laughs> off it's just we were talking about documentaries earlier and I've been friends with a uh, a documentary filmmaker were about five or six years. His name is, is a Scottish filmmaker. His name is David Graham Scott. And one thing that 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 we have that's kind of a perk of, of, of knowing filmmakers and kind of behind-the-scenes things is that you can see films before they're completed. You might see two or three iterations before the final cut. And I just saw one of his films the other day. He, he allowed me to watch it. and He's got a little ways to go on it. But it's called The End of a Game end of the game, and it's about the vegan and the big game hunter. And he's trying to break out of a mold that he's kind of been in for a while. And it's just, it's, it's just interesting to see the evolution of, of documentary filmmakers and filmmakers in general, especially when you get to know them and be friends with them. And um, mm. I would say he's someone to look out for if no one has seen any of his films. I just kind of wanted to, Jimmy, you can cut it out. I just wanted to if you want, but I just wanted to put a plug in for him because I think he's he's a very good filmmaker and and perhaps doesn't get as much notice as he should. So um, no, I'll, I'll keep guys, it. In. I'll keep it. In. Okay. Well, thank you very much, guys. Thank you so thank, much for having you. me on the show. Yeah. Thank you. Thank Rich. you for coming. Thank you, Rich. Can I end the show now, guys? <laughs> yes. <yeah, sure, sure. laughs>